Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. The body of a Texas National Guardsman was recovered today. He reportedly drowned while trying to rescue two illegal immigrants crossing the Rio Grande River. Melissa Lucio's execution is delayed. A court in Texas will review new claims in the case. Lucio was scheduled to die this Wednesday for murdering her two-year-old daughter. Twitter accepts Elon Musk's offer. Musk has emphasized the importance of free speech and enhancing Twitter's features. What changes might he make to the platform? The Supreme Court hears the case of a former football coach who was fired over his tradition of praying on the field. The outcome could have broad implications on the separation of church and state. The man who set himself on fire in front of the Supreme Court building on Friday has died. And a fire emoji he posted on his Facebook page may have been an indication of what he was planning to do. The body of a Texas National Guardsman who went missing on Friday has been recovered. He was reportedly trying to rescue two illegal immigrants from the Rio Grande River. Texas Governor Greg Abbott's office announced Monday that the body of a missing National Guard soldier was found along the Rio Grande River at the U.S.-Mexico border, ending a multi-agency search effort over the weekend. The Texas Military Department identified the service member as Bishop Evans, a 22-year-old Texas Army National Guard soldier. Last Friday, Evans removed his armor and jumped into the river to save two illegal immigrants who appeared to be drowning. Governor Abbott shared Evans' image on Twitter and said that the soldier heroically served his state and country. Evans was working for Governor Abbott's Operation Lone Star, a mission to combat illegal immigration and the border drug trade. Last Thursday, the governor and other officials also mentioned the operation and border security at a roundtable discussion. I've deployed 10,000 National Guard and Texas Department of Public Safety officers. Together, they've apprehended more than 200,000 migrants. The Texas Rangers who led the search efforts say the illegal immigrants in the river were involved in drug trafficking and are now with the U.S. Customs and Border Patrol. NTD News, Texas. And a court has granted a temporary order blocking the Biden administration from lifting Title 42. This is in response to a lawsuit filed by Missouri, Louisiana and Arizona. Since March 2020, Title 42 has allowed for the quick expulsion of migrants and asylum seekers on the grounds of public health. Missouri's Attorney General announced the court order Monday afternoon, saying it's a huge victory for border security, but added that their fight continues. And a Texas court today delayed the execution of Melissa Lucio, who's convicted of killing her two-year-old daughter in 2007. Her execution was scheduled to take place this Wednesday. The Texas Court of Criminal Appeals on Monday granted a request by Melissa Lucio's lawyers for a stay of execution. Lucio, who is now 52 years old, was convicted of fatally beating her two-year-old daughter Mariah in 2007. She had been set for lethal injection on Wednesday. Lucio's lawyers are now asking a lower court to review claims that could exonerate her. Her lawyers say new evidence shows that the child's injuries, including a blow to the head, were caused by a fall down a steep staircase and not caused by Lucio. The lawyers also say Lucio's conviction was based on an unreliable and coerced confession and that the investigation involved unscientific and false evidence. Prosecutors dealing with the case disagree. They say Lucio had a history of drug abuse and at times had lost custody of some of her 14 children. Lucio's case has been gaining attention. More than half of Texas state lawmakers have asked that her execution be halted. And five of the 12 jurors who sentenced Lucio have questioned their decision and asked that she get a new trial. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. It's now official. Elon Musk and Twitter have reached an agreement. Musk, the multi-billionaire founder of SpaceX, will take over the social media company and he'll pay about $44 billion. Musk has emphasized the importance of free speech and enhancing Twitter's features. So how might the social network change under Musk? And today's Faye Quarter has that story. I think it's very important for uh, there to be an inclusive arena for free speech. 
Now that Elon Musk is Twitter's new owner, what changes will actually take place? Musk gave some clues back on April the 14th. Open source the algorithm um, and make any changes uh, to people's tweets, you know, if they're emphasized or de-emphasized, uh, that action should be made apparent. Musk says there will be no behind-the-scenes manipulation this way. Most algorithms are the secret sauce of a company. Scott Schober is the author of Cybersecurity is Everybody's Business. Schober says algorithms are instructions that the computer program uses to sort the content in your feed. Schober says there could be downsides to making it public. Other social media giants can quickly look at that and try to exploit copy that same type of algorithm to their advantage and it could break down the competition. Musk says the code could be posted to GitHub, where people should be able to look at the code, comment on it, and suggest changes. Why are some people re reaching 5% of their audience, some people reaching 50% of their audience? Jeff Brain is the CEO of social platform CloudHub. Brain says the algorithm should be open and that his own platform doesn't use an algorithm. Musk also brought up having an edit feature. But you don't only have the edit capability for a short period of time. This way, there will be fewer people retweeting tweets before they've been changed. Maybe a 60-second window where you posted something and then you look at it and it's like, oh no, I, I have this typo here. What do I do? Jeremy Knopf is the founder of Spartan Media. Knopf says this also prevents people from changing history. And finally, another priority is... Eliminating the, the spam and, and scam bots. Um, and the bot armies that are on Twitter. Spam bots are computer programs that post on Twitter, pretending to be real people. Jeremy Knopf, founder of Spartan Media, says Twitter has not done a good job of destroying them. Combating spam bots is, is an incredibly difficult process. What you have to do is you have to basically leverage big data and artificial intelligence to evaluate what they're doing. Musk already has a team in place. They've already got the background. They're using AI extensively in SpaceX and Tesla. Twitter announced the deal was final Monday afternoon. Faye Quarter, NTD News. Actor Johnny Depp has concluded his testimony and his defamation suit against his ex-wife. Amber Heard's lawyer attempted to show that Depp's career was suffering even before the op-ed was published. NTD's Jason Perry has that story. After a string of flops and a ton of bad press, Johnny Depp's star power looks as wobbly as Jack Sparrow on a plank. Did I read that right? You read that very, very well. The next one. Both Depp's and Heard's lawyers played several recordings in which the couple could be heard fighting and yelling at each other. Depp's lawyer questioned Depp about how the op-ed, in which Heard said she was a sexual abuse survivor, affected his career. When did you first learn that Disney was not going to recast you in the Pirates franchise? It was a probably two or three days after this op-ed appeared. A house manager recalled some of the arguments he witnessed between Heard and Depp. I was close enough to, to hear Ms. Heard say, why did you take your hand away from me, Johnny? Don't you, don't you love me anymore? Like, not in a playful way, I might add. Um, and I think he replied, of course I do, don't be silly. Yeah. Of course I do, and it kind of launched from that point. Heard has yet to take the stand. Jason Perry, NTD News. A New York judge today held former President Donald Trump in contempt of court, saying he had failed to produce documents subpoenaed by the state attorney general, Letitia James, in her civil probe of his business practices. The court said it found Trump in contempt because it was not clear he had conducted a complete search for the documents. Trump is ordered to pay $10,000 per day until he complies. Trump's attorney, Alina Haba, said Trump did comply with the subpoena, but that he didn't have any of the requested documents. She intends to appeal the ruling. A former football coach was fired by the school district because he refused to stop praying on the field. And today, his case was brought before the Supreme Court. Broad implications on the separation of church and state rest on the outcome. NTD's Chenny Wu has the story. A coach who makes the sign of the cross before a game, a math teacher who reads the Bible before the bell rings, and a coach who hosts an after-school Christian group. These were all hypothetical scenarios brought up by the Supreme Court justices during Monday's opening arguments in the Kennedy v. Bremerton School District trial. 
The court is to decide whether the former high school football coach had the right to kneel and lead post-game prayers at the 50-yard line. At issue is whether, as a public employee, Kennedy's actions amounted to governmental speech, which can be regulated under Supreme Court precedents, or a private act separate from his official duties, which the First Amendment would protect. Justice Samuel Alito suggested that the school district fired Kennedy specifically for religious speech. Suppose that everything about this case is exactly the same as it was in reality, with this one difference. When Coach Kennedy went out to the center of the field on these two occasions, all he did was to wave a Ukrainian flag. Would you have fired him? The school district says that Kennedy's praying could pressure students to do the same and put the district itself at risk of lawsuits. The Supreme Court is expected to make a decision before its summer recess. Chenny Wu, NTD News. The man who set himself on fire in front of the Supreme Court building on Friday has died. According to his Facebook account, he planned to light himself on fire on Earth Day. NTD's Jason Perry has the story. On the evening of Friday, April 22nd, on the day when Earth was celebrated, a man went to the plaza in front of the U.S. Supreme Court in Washington, D.C. and lit himself on fire. The Supreme Court Police, U.S. Capitol Police, and the Metropolitan Police Department all responded to the incident. The man was airlifted to a hospital where he passed away, according to MPD. The self-immolator was later identified as Wynn Bruce of Boulder, Colorado. And according to his Facebook profile, he was Buddhist and shared many posts about climate change. Bruce commented on one of his own posts with the date of 4-22-2022 and a fire emoji. The comment had a last edit date of April 2nd. A Supreme Court spokesperson on Friday said no one else was injured in the incident. Jason Perry, NTD News. Amid Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the FBI says the U.S. is facing an unprecedented level of espionage from Beijing. Speaking in a Sunday CBS interview, FBI Director Christopher Wray said the current scale of Beijing's espionage and cybersecurity threats is unprecedented in history. He also noted China has a hacking program larger than that of every other major nation combined. They have stolen more of Americans' personal and corporate data than every nation combined. Ray says that the FBI is opening a new China counterintelligence investigation about every 12 hours, and there are well above 2,000 active cases already. Meanwhile, CIA Director William Burns was also warning of Beijing's unique threats just a week ago. A silent partner in Putin's aggression, Xi Jinping's China is our greatest challenge in many ways the most profound test that CIA has ever faced. Burns identified China as the single greatest geopolitical challenge in the 21st century. In the last few years, Beijing has hacked at least 150 U.S. companies to steal secrets. It is trying to increase its nuclear arsenal to 1,000 warheads. It has detained one million of its own citizens simply because they are Muslim and arrested thousands more in Hong Kong for peacefully supporting democracy. Meanwhile, several U.S. senators are pushing for the Department of Justice to reinstate a Trump-era program dubbed the China Initiative to fight spying from Beijing. Meeting with officials in Europe today, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said the U.S. wants to see Russia weakened to the degree that it can't do the kinds of things that it has done in invading Ukraine. That's after Austin and Washington's top diplomat visited Ukraine over the weekend, the first official U.S. visit since Russia invaded. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin met Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky in Kyiv late on Sunday. The U.S. pledged more military aid and a return of U.S. envoys to Kyiv. Zelensky expressed his gratitude, saying, quote, I would like to thank President Biden personally and on behalf of the entire Ukrainian people for his leadership in supporting Ukraine for his personal clear position. To thank all the American people, as well as the Congress, for their bicameral and bipartisan support. We see it. We feel it. Austin and Blinken announced a total of $713 million in foreign military aid. It's for Ukraine and 15 allied and partner countries. Some $322 million is earmarked for Kyiv. 
Austin said Monday the U.S. believes Ukraine can win. They can win if they have the right uh, equipment, the right support. And we're going to do everything we can, continue to do everything we can to ensure that that gets there. Austin also commented on the U.S. goals in the war. We want to see uh, Ukraine uh, remain a sovereign uh, country, a democratic country, able to protect its, uh, uh, its sovereign territory. A reporter asked Blinken about an article in the Boston Globe. It reported that aid for Ukraine was not being delivered. Blinken disputed the account. Hundreds of billions of dollars in assistance has already gotten in, not only to Ukraine, but to surrounding countries that are caring for Ukrainians who've been displaced, who are refugees. Uh, literally every day as we speak, aid is going in. Blinken also said Biden would announce his pick for a U.S. ambassador to Ukraine and that American diplomats would start returning to Ukraine this coming week. Meanwhile, United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres will visit Moscow Tuesday. He'll meet with Russian leader Vladimir Putin and Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov to see what can be done to bring peace to Ukraine. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. Coming up, parades, a candlelight vigil, and more. Supporters of the spiritual practice Falun Gong in New York City commemorated a peaceful appeal against the Chinese Communist Party's imprisonment of Falun Gong practitioners. And the Red Bull Daredevils, their plane stunt gone wrong. Why the FAA is now investigating. That and more coming up. speaks we don't just scratch the surface we want to go wide and deep our viewers come away with a much richer understanding of the issues of the day we really make a big effort to bring on different voices onto the show we don't just talk to experts and newsmakers which of course are extremely important but we also want to hear from the American people so the people who are impacted by the policies and issues that we're talking about because what they have to say is just as important to the national conversation Over the weekend, people in New York City commemorated the anniversary of a peaceful appeal against the imprisonment of Falun Gong practitioners in China. The events included parades, marching bands, and a candlelight vigil. NTD's Arian Pazdar was at the scene. A marching band, banners with slogans, and even dragons. Saturday's parade in New York's Chinatown in Queens had all of those things. People were commemorating the 23rd anniversary of April 25, 1999. That's when thousands of people in China appealed against the incarceration of Falun Gong practitioners. The organizer of Saturday's parade explained why the Chinese Communist Party persecutes Falun Gong practitioners. In China, you have to, you know, believe so-called communism, and no other, you know, religion is allowed. She added that she sees a change in the community after organizing these kind of events for a long period of time. One example for such change is one of the speakers who doesn't practice Falun Gong himself. I was a huge advocate of the CCP in the past and because, partly because of what the Falun Gong community did here in the US, I was able to see the truth and that's why I'm here. Before the persecution, Falun Gong was taught for almost a decade in China and approximately 100 million people enjoyed the benefits of it. It's really given me a lot of harmony because as a Falun Gong practitioner, you're always focusing on, on the principles of the practice, which are truthfulness, compassion and tolerance. And so always treating others that way, which means always sort of striving to having good thoughts, the right thoughts and caring for others. After the events in Queens, supporters had a candlelight vigil in Manhattan, holding up bright lotus flowers in front of the Chinese embassy. Ariane Pastar, NTD News, New York. A nurse who claimed she was fired for complaining about inefficient COVID protocols can sue her former employer. A Philadelphia U.S. District Court denied Bayada Home Health Care's attempt to have the case dismissed. The nurse alleged in her complaint that when the COVID pandemic hit in 2020, she saw some practices at Bayada that she thought were illegal and not compliant with health and safety orders. Among a long list of allegations, she said Bayada did not provide employees with adequate personal protective equipment and instructed employees not to tell patients or their family members when staff were infected with COVID. 
She says that Bayada's reason for firing her was because she refused to see patients and because patients complained about her. A federal appeals court has granted a nonprofit's request for an injunction against the University of Central Florida's policies on discrimination and bias. NTD's Arlene Richards reports. Speech First, a nonprofit that advocates for students' constitutional rights, alleged in a complaint that the University of Central Florida has restrictive rules and regulations that punish free speech. It said that vague, overbroad restrictions contained in the policies discourage speech by students who dare to disagree with the prevailing campus beliefs, and that universities are now more interested in protecting students from ideas that make them uncomfortable, and that these restrictions violate students' First Amendment rights. The three-judge panel agreed that the university's policies prevented students from speaking freely and said that speech first was substantially likely to show that at trial. University spokesman Chad Bennett told NTD in an email that the university is reviewing the court's decision and we remain fully committed to encouraging differing viewpoints, free speech and free expression, and we recommit to ensuring our policies are consistent with those ideals. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. The Satanic Temple is suing a Pennsylvania elementary school. That's because its school board voted against hosting an after-school Satan club run by the temple. The group argues the board's decision violates the First Amendment. NTD's Grace Coulter has the story. Can a school be forced to host an after-school Satan club? This is something a court will soon have to determine. According to a local ABC affiliate, the Satanic Temple is suing Northern Elementary School in York, Pennsylvania for not allowing it to hold an after-school kids club. The school board voted against the club 8-1 to one last week. The decision was chaired by parents who, according to local news outlets, packed the auditorium to voice opposition to the club. Only a few spoke in support. The Satanic Temple's attorney says the lawsuit intends to litigate whether the board discriminated against the organization. The group's website says its after-school Satan clubs do not proselytize, but focus on free inquiry and rationalism. But many parents are not convinced. Dozens oppose the club on moral and religious grounds, some saying it poses danger to both children and the nation. Three schools in Ohio and Illinois host the clubs. One also appears to be coming to a school in North Carolina. Grace Coulter, NTD News. The Red Bull Air Force Daredevils attempted the first-ever mid-air plane swap stunt yesterday, but were only partially successful. While one pilot skydived into the other's plane, the other wasn't so fortunate. NTD's Dave Martin has more. And rotating. The objective was for each Daredevil to take off in one plane and land in the other and aviation first for a reason. After 10 years of planning, the duo finally took to the skies Sunday, flying their Cessnas in tandem to approximately 14,000 feet across the Arizona skyline before making their daring leaps. Uh, ready, ready. Go. Coming down. In Break three, coming down. Two, in three, one. two, Break. one. Break. Their plan was to deploy their custom-built air brakes, put the planes in a nosedive, and then turn off their engines before exiting. They then had less than a minute to swim through the air to the other's plane. But while Luke Aikens was able to make his way into the other aircraft and eventually land it, the other plane spun out of control, making it impossible for Andy Farrington to climb aboard. Farrington had to deploy his parachute. Fortunately, he was okay. There's no way to test it until you do it. You know what? Andy's fine. Yeah, he said he's like the. I could hear him talking to me in free fall. What's great is I jumped from one. I got in the other one. We landed. I landed safely. Andy landed safely under parachute. The plane landed under a parachute. Uh, all of our safety protocols worked. Although Farrington landed safely, the same might not apply to the other plane. Fox 10 out of Phoenix reported that the FAA is investigating the crashed aircraft and that the government agency had previously denied them permission to perform the stunt. Dave Martin, NTD News. The Brooklyn Nets are on the verge of elimination tonight as they host the Boston Celtics, trailing three games to none. The game is one of three on the NBA schedule. NTD's Dave Martin has more. The Nets 
Despite stars, Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving are on the brink of being swept in the first round. Adding to their misery is a report that star guard Ben Simmons won't make his season debut tonight after reporting back soreness on Sunday. While Durant has struggled shooting, Boston's Jason Tatum has torched them for 30 points a contest, including the game-winning layup in the opener that swung the series. Game 5 of the Sixers-Raptors set is second on the schedule, with Philly needing just one more win to move on. Joel Embiid has averaged 26 points a game in this series, despite playing with a ligament tear in his right thumb. The MVP candidate is planning to wait until after the season, though, to have surgery. And finally, Dallas hosts Utah in a series tied at two games apiece. While all-star Luka Doncic is back, the Mavs have been led by their lesser-known guard, Jalen Brunson, who scored 41 in the Game 2 win. Dave Martin, NTD News. The war in Ukraine has pushed up fertilizer prices, made scarce supplies rarer, and squeezed farmers, especially those in the developing world struggling to make a living. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more. In Brazil, farmer Eda Milson Rickley shows off a warehouse that would normally be packed with fertilizer bags, but he has only enough to last a few more weeks. The supply chain has already been compromised. We don't know when this conflict will be over so the raw materials from Russia and Belarus can get to Brazil. The question is, where is Brazil going to get more fertilizer? We have to find other markets, but things aren't so simple. Brazil is the world's fourth largest consumer of fertilizer, and last year, 85% of the total amount used was imported. In Kenya, Monica Kariuki is about to give up farming because of the price of fertilizer. Kariuki used to spend $175 to fertilize her entire farm in the outskirts of Nairobi. Now she would need to spend five times as much. I used to spend about $175 for fertilizer for the whole farm, but now it will go up to $875. What I can see is that I can't continue with the farming business. Because of the losses, I'm quitting farming to try something else. And many developing nations already face food scarcity challenges. The, the number of people facing food insecurity has increased over the last year especially after the pandemic to over, I think it's over 800 million people. Analysts warn that higher fertilizer prices mean reduced farm production, leading to costlier food. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Coming up, remember the crypto adver advertisements during the Super Bowl? Did you or anyone you know look into crypto after watching them? And Los Angeles needs more teachers, so they're hiring non-teaching staff. The job vacancies come after the district fired hundreds of teachers for resisting jab, jab mandates. We'll look at how the district is working it out and how people are responding after the break on NTD News. Remember those catchy crypto ads from the Super Bowl just a short time ago? They certainly get a lot of attention, but did they convince you, or anyone you know, to get involved with crypto? NTD's Phil Zoe reports. Over 200 million people tuned into the Super Bowl this past February. That means a lot of eyes were on at least one of the four crypto ads that played during the game. The goal was to make the top brands known in each of the households that were watching the Super Bowl. But were the ads successful in getting new crypto customers? Where so many folks have known about it and known about the potential, um, and people are coming on board with all their new stimulus checks and the Biden uh, bills that were sent out. The White House recently said about 16% or 40 million Americans either traded, invested, or used crypto. Right now, the process in actually getting a wallet and going on an exchange is, is rather difficult. Until they make that easy, uh, as seamless as, you know, a transaction at my store or, you know, like a credit card, I think it's going to be very difficult for people to really acclimate to cryptocurrency. Spot trading volume for crypto was only $700 billion in March, the month 
month following the Super Bowl. That figure was over $1 trillion for nine out of 12 months last year. There is a geopolitical crisis with primarily Ukraine and also the Fed claiming that they're going to in raise interest rates, which they've been doing, um, and as well as inflation. So consumer confidence is definitely low due to uncertainty. David Girard is a crypto analyst. He says the Super Bowl ads were a desperate move by the crypto industry. This big promotional push doesn't mean that there's more action happening. The push is happening because there's less action happening. There's less retail volume. There's less fresh actual dollars coming into crypto from ordinary people. And the people in crypto are starting to worry. So they're paying for huge advertisements. I would take extreme caution at this stage. Bitcoin has been trading in a range between $30,000 and right under $50,000. That's after it hit a record high of nearly $70,000 last November. Phil Zoe, NTD News. It was 17 years ago today that tennis great Rafael Nadal entered the top 10 of the ATP rankings for the first time. He has not left since. The 35-year-old, who's currently ranked fourth, extended his record-breaking streak today to 866 weeks as an elite player. Nadal passed the legendary Jim Jimmy Connors a little over a year ago, while rival Roger Federer sits in third. And with Nadal's favorite tournament, the French Open, set to start next month, it seems a good bet he'll keep going. Should Nadal win the French, not only would it be his 14th title at Roland Garros, it would also be his record-extending 22nd Grand Slam championship, putting him two ahead of Federer and Novak Djokovic. Los Angeles Unified School District has solved its major teacher shortage in an unorthodox manner. It's temporarily filling nearly half of its vacant teaching positions with administrators and district staff. As for the missing teachers, they are out due to vaccine non-compliance. Earlier this month, Los Angeles Unified School District, or LAUSD, announced plans to fill hundreds of vacant teaching positions. Superintendent Alberto Carvalho plans to have about 420 administrators and other staff fill in for absent educators to address the district's teacher shortage. The vacancies opened up after teachers refused the district's COVID jab mandates. On April 20th, the superintendent said 234 of those vacancies still remain open. The district is only reassigning staff who already have teaching credentials issued by the state. According to a March 29th report by the district's Board of Education, the district has also hired 2,336 new teachers this school year. Only 26% of the recently hired teachers are fully credentialed by the state to teach. The district's teachers' union, United Teachers Los Angeles, said that the teacher shortage is a call for the district to do more for teachers. Since November, LAUSD has fired 800 staff members for noncompliance with the mandate, and about 600 teachers were forced to move out of classrooms to teach remotely in the City of Angels. NTD reached out to a spokesperson for the LAUSD. Cynthia Kai, NTD News, California. Last week, to celebrate Earth Day, groups in Los Angeles broke ground on a one-of-a-kind freeway overpass. It's designed for wildlife, specifically mountain lions. NTD's David Lamb has a look at what's under construction. On Friday, California broke ground for what will be the world's largest wildlife overpass. The Wallace-Annenberg Wildlife Crossing is under construction in Agora Hills, outside of Los Angeles. The overpass will span a section of U.S. Highway 101. Once completed, wildlife that inhabit both sides of the freeway can safely cross. That way, animals like mountain lions can safely avoid the 350,000 cars that travel the stretch of the road per day. But it's not just safe for the animals. It's really important because, you know, from 2016 to 2020, there were 44,000 reported collisions with wildlife on California roads. And um, that cost up to over a billion dollars in human injuries to human, human death and, and property damage. And so when we build these wildlife crossings, then we can have these animals avoid the road and therefore it makes it the road safer for drivers. One director said a mountain lion living in the area served as an inspiration for the crossing. 
The lion, designated P22, has a Facebook page for following the cat. This isn't just an L.A. story. It's not just a California story. The world has really been inspired by this. And P-22, who inspired this crossing, his story. And it, it made us rethink where wildlife should be. The groundbreaking took place on Earth Day. The woman whom the bridge is named after spoke to the importance of coexistence with nature. We can share this Earth instead of claiming it and dominating it. We can coexist side by side with all kinds of wildlife instead of paving it over and choking it off. That's why I am so proud to support LA's crossing, which will be the largest urban wildlife crossing in the world. The project costs about $90 million and about 60% of the funding is from donations, with the remainder from public conservation funds. Coming up, a Shanghai survey shows most foreigners living there are losing confidence with this metropolis. Many of them are leaving. Investors' money flow also indicates that Shanghai no longer seems safe for their assets. And France's incumbent president, Emmanuel Macron, won a second term. He admits that some voters only chose him to block his opponent. That and more when we return on NTD News. Navigating a world of economic madness, you need to have the right guide. What do today's decisions mean for your tomorrow? We ask why, what's the alternative? Uncover the deeper reasons and the hidden influences and highlight the real opportunities for profit. At Entity Business, we connect the dots for you. Good evening. Surveys and unprecedented capital flow data tell one thing. Foreigners are losing confidence in Shanghai. The prosperity of this global financial hub appears to be fading, as many foreigners say they're leaving. Here's China in Focus's Tiffany Meyer. About half of the foreigners living in Shanghai say they are planning to leave the city, while much of the other half are reportedly weighing their options. A mid-April survey was conducted via a local branch of Hong Kong Focus Media. It interviewed 950 foreigners living in Shanghai. The survey estimated that number of foreigners living in the city will be cut in half within just a year. Nearly 50% of those interviewed said they plan to leave Shanghai in the coming year, if not sometime sooner. Nearly 40% said they'll hold off on making any big moving decisions until the pandemic is over. More than half of those surveyed hold a master's degree. And more than 210,000 foreigners lived in Shanghai in 2020 before the pandemic broke out, the most among Chinese cities. Shanghai authorities announced a white list of over 600 companies in mid-April. Businesses on the list will reportedly get priority for reopening and resuming normal operations. At the same time, foreign businesses running in the city say they've had a hard time staffing their factories again because of the city's widespread lockdown orders. A mix of political and business risks have made Shanghai less attractive for investors in recent months. According to recent data from the Institute of International Finance, foreign investors are pulling money out of China on an unprecedented scale. Worth noting, other markets saw no comparable outflow during the same time period. In Shanghai, China's global financial hub, a top supplier to tech giants like Apple and Tesla, is facing a major problem widespread COVID-19 infections inside its facility. Employees of Quanta Computer Co., a Taiwan-based manufacturer that produces Tesla accessories and Apple laptops, recently revealed to the Epoch Times that thousands of workers were infected at the company's Shanghai factory and that their calls to the outside world for help were silenced. Last week, an employee surnamed Lee said he's living in one of the factory's dormitories where cross-infection happened. He said there are more than 40,000 people working at the factory, and thousands have tested positive for COVID-19. 
At the same time, alarms have been installed on all dormitory doors, but Lee called them useless and questioned if the devices are to prevent them from leaving their rooms. Lee added that despite there being so many confirmed patients, drinking water facilities and toilets are still shared in the dormitory. According to another employee surnamed Liu, many people inside are now experiencing cold-like symptoms. While their colleague surnamed Lin said the factory has now banned, quote, everyone from speaking up, adding the situation there is chaotic. We contacted the company for details, but no one answered the phone. Another top supplier for Apple iPhones, Foxconn, is stopping work at two factories in a city near Shanghai. That's after the company reported unspecified numbers of new virus cases on site Monday. Columbia University in New York City recently rescinded an offer to a Chinese student due to his social media posts. The student, who is not identified, had posted on Chinese social media WeChat saying he would buy a gun and kill Americans after arriving in the U.S. The Chinese student was initially accepted into Columbia University's School of Engineering and Applied Science, but the university later informed the student in a letter saying that the school has no choice but to rescind the offer. The letter was circulating online earlier this week. It was signed by the executive director of graduate admissions. The letter reads, the behavior which you admitted to engaging in, making multiple threats of violence on WeChat in response to the recent tragedy that occurred in New York City, is inconsistent with university policies and our expectations for our students and can't be tolerated. The letter also says that the school is taking these matters extremely seriously. The Epoch Times reached out to Columbia University, but the school declined to comment and said they have no additional information to provide. For many Chinese students, studying in the U.S., especially at an Ivy League school, is a stepping stone for better career opportunities or a chance to immigrate. According to Chinese social media, the students' online posts were reported to the university by members of the Great Translation Movement, or TGTM. The online movement aims to expose the CCP's anti-Western propaganda and policies to the rest of the world. They do this by translating Chinese propaganda and netizen comments into English and other languages. Lockdowns could be hitting China's capital as virus cases surge and mass testing begins. Residents are scared. NTD's Don Ma brings us the story. Some store shelves are nearly empty as panic buying breaks out in Beijing's biggest district, Chaoyang, home to more than 3 million people. Residents are scared because authorities are starting mass virus testing. If a lot of people test positive, the district could go under lockdown. All three million people in the district will have to get tested this week. In some areas, the lines for virus testing stretch for multiple blocks. Residents have to get tested not once, not twice. All three million have to get tested three times in one week, starting Monday. Amid lockdown worries, locals are crowding stores and online platforms to stock up on vegetables, meat, noodles and toilet paper. People are a little worried. Some online shopping platforms are being overloaded with orders, so it reflects some of the residents' worries. We are afraid if the shipping services are cut, food and supplies won't be able to meet demand. Grocery stores in parts of Beijing are packed with people. Residents are not taking chances after seeing how Shanghai residents struggled to obtain food amid lockdowns. We didn't think about what to stock up on. I just hope it won't be like Shanghai. I bought something easy to store. Green vegetables are definitely needed. Also some snacks for the kids. Residents are hopeful that what happened to Shanghai won't happen to Beijing. But they're still worried. There is definitely a certain degree of worry because locking down will affect jobs and Beijing's overall efficiency. Residents' worries may be justified as authorities are already starting to put up lockdown fences in parts of Beijing. Don Ma, NTD News.
French President Emmanuel Macron won re-election on Sunday, defeating his opponent Marine Le Pen by a comfortable margin. In a speech below the Eiffel Tower, Macron acknowledged that some people only voted for him to prevent Le Pen from winning. Here are the details. Many of our compatriots voted for me not out of support for my ideas, but to block those of the extreme right. I want to thank them, and I know that I have a duty towards them in the years to come. Macron supporters cheered and waved French and EU flags as the results rolled in. On the outskirts of Paris, dejected Le Pen supporters booed the election outcome. Farther north, Le Pen fans expressed unbridled anger as they view Macron as an elitist with contempt for ordinary people. Le Pen conceded the race not long after the polls closed, but vowed to keep up the fight with the June parliamentary elections in mind. The French are showing tonight a wish for a strong counterpower against Emmanuel Macron. The match is not completely over, since in a few weeks the legislative elections will take place. Opposition parties on the right and left will immediately start a major push to try to vote in a parliament and government opposed to Macron, whose margin of victory looked to be tighter than when he first beat Le Pen five years ago, underlining how many French remain unimpressed with him and his domestic record. In what may be a sign of things to come, police fired tear gas at demonstrators Sunday night. Protests over Macron's pro-business reforms plagued his first five years in office. Despite the social discontent, though, the 44-year-old became the first French president in 20 years to win a second term. UK officials are recommending that the country's aviation watchdog should have stronger powers to protect passengers hit by travel disruptions. They say that the Civil Aviation Authority should be able to fine airlines that do not completely refund customers when required to do so by law. NTD's Malcolm Hudson has the story. In a new report, the Transport Committee says the UK's Civil Aviation Authority should be given more teeth to find airlines that aren't refunding customers when they are required to by law. It comes after almost two years of disarray for the travel sector because of the COVID lockdowns. Aviation was one of the industries worst affected by lockdown measures. International travel was banned and many customers had flights and holidays cancelled. The 55-page report, UK Aviation Reform for Takeoff, calls for ministers to publish an aviation recovery plan by June. The Transport Committee says in the document, the government must compensate the industry for the economic loss suffered if measures impacting the sector are reimposed. MPs welcome previous assertions by ministers that travel restrictions will only be applied in extreme circumstances in the future. Hugh Merriman, the Conservative chairman of the committee, says, Legislation is urgently needed to give the industry more flexibility to recruit new staff for the summer, to give the regulator more teeth to intervene on behalf of consumers, and to provide protection from airline insolvencies. The report noted that some Ryanair passengers are still waiting for compensation four years after being impacted by a pilot strike due to the company legally challenging the Civil Aviation Authority enforcement action. Responding to the report, Consumer Director at the CAA, Paul Smith, said the MP's recommendations will, if implemented, improve passenger rights and equip the Civil Aviation Authority with better tools to act swiftly and effectively for the benefit of consumers. The Airport Operators Association welcomed recognition of the impact the pandemic had on aviation, saying they joined calls for a recovery package to allow their sector to recover. And the Department of Transport said they ensured restrictions were in place for no longer than absolutely necessary and that in future they will adopt the least stringent measures possible. Malcolm Hudson, NTD News, London. Coming up, a Japanese woman who held the record for the oldest living person has passed away at the age of 119. And a Baseball Hall of Fame broadcaster is retiring soon. Learn what kept him in a career that spanned six decades here on NTD News. Japanese broadcaster NHK announced that the world's oldest person has passed away at the age of 119. 
Kane Tanaka was born in 1903, the year of the Wright brothers' first controlled flight of their motorized airplane. In a tweet earlier this month, her family said she had been sick and in and out of the hospital. The Japanese woman was certified by Guinness World Records as the world's oldest person. Tanaka was supposed to take part in the Olympic torch relay at the postponed 2020 Summer Olympics, but she didn't participate because of COVID-19 concerns. Japan has the oldest population in the world, but now the oldest person alive is believed to be a 118-year-old French nun by the name of Lucille Randon. One of baseball's longtime broadcasters is set to retire at the end of the season after 64 years. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg brings us the details. Jaime Harin, Spanish voice of the Los Angeles Dodgers, is retiring after this season. I have enjoyed so much what I'm doing that really the time flies. When Harin came to the U.S. from Ecuador in 1955, he knew very little about the game. He says he was fortunate to arrive at the right time when the Dodgers moved from Brooklyn to Los Angeles. He says he wasn't looking, but the Dodgers found him and gave him the job. They wanted to cover the games bilingual, English and Spanish. And we have been very successful in that because I have seen the number of, of Latinos coming to the, to the ballpark. Harin says he is grateful to the Dodgers for the opportunity to broadcast the games in Spanish over the last 64 years and to the fans that kept him going over his lifetime career. And I think also a lot of people in the Latino world in baseball and sports feel like he's that uncle that they know because of his voice and his presence and his demeanor. Harin is one of the longest running announcers in Major League Baseball history. He was inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame in 1998. While being in the Hall of Fame is something Harin cherishes, he says his biggest award comes from the fans. What opportunity for me to give them something to enjoy after a hard, hard working day. So I think I am doing a public service uh, besides describing what's going on on the field. He says when out in public, people will stop and thank him for providing them a way to spend more time with Spanish-speaking loved ones thanks to his voice. That really touches my heart and that's the best compliment that I can get more than any other accolade that I get. Harin will stay with the club as an ambassador for two years to attend special events, but plans to enjoy his retirement traveling and raising money for his project, the Jaime and Blanca Harin Foundation. The organization provides educational and athletic programs to those in need. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.